Hey there, and welcome to episode 111 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Lee McCullum, and I'm your host for today. And my guest today is best-selling author Rob Wolf. He is a former research biochemist, a two-time New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. And he is also the co-author of the book, Sacred Cow. He co-founded the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world, hosts the Healthy Rebellion podcast with his wife, and is also the co-founder of Drink Element Electrolytes. That's LMNT. You can also find him discussing his work on the Joe Rogan experience. And I recently found out that Rob is a libertarian, so I wanted to invite him on to talk about his background, how he became a libertarian, a little bit about health freedom and why red meat is not killing you and is also not bad for the environment. And we tried to fit in a lot of topics in under an hour, so I'm definitely going to want to bring him back on to dive deeper into these topics, especially especially since we received a lot of questions from you guys. Um, but anyways, I, I hope you enjoy this episode. Here's Rob Wolf. All right, let's get into it. Um, I'm sure many people in the audience know who you are already. Uh, we actually received a few questions from them on various topics. But for those who who don't, what's your background and, and what do you do? Oh, man, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. I turned 51 this year, and so I feel like the origin story just keeps, uh, it's kind of like a plane crash that never quite quite finishes. But um, I'm a biochemist by training. I, I did my undergrad in biochemistry, was looking at either an MD or an MD-PhD kind of track. I was doing some research in the uh, cancer and autoimmunity uh, uh, kind of angle of lipid metabolism. And this was back in the, the mid to late 90s. And around that time, I became really sick. I developed ulcerative colitis bad enough that they, they wanted to do a bowel resection and put me on immunosuppressant drugs. And uh, I'm, I'm five foot nine. I'm uh, right now I'm uh, 170 pounds. Um, at that time, I was still five foot nine, but I got down to 125, 130 pounds from the kind of malabsorption issues that I had. So I, I nearly died from that experience. And it's a, a long convoluted story, uh, how this idea of ancestral eating or a paleo type diet got on my radar, but it, it did. And um, it for sure saved my life. And it was such a profound um, event for me that I, I just couldn't imagine going through medical school and then residency and, and doing all the stuff that was that was mainly oriented towards kind of crisis management instead of dealing with the, the root cause. I wasn't really fired up about doing medical school or really research at that time. There were not the, the kind of cool research opportunities in like ketogenic diets and stuff like that that there, there is now. So I was kind of stumped about what to do. And uh, I, I continued just doing kind of my, my benchtop research and, and casting around. And I found this weird workout online called CrossFit. And this was around 2000, 2001. And it, it had some pretty cool links to it, talking about different nutrition topics that I liked. And a friend of mine, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL, I told him and another friend of mine, Nick Nibbler, Nick is a, a retired... Uh, uh, he was a Marine officer, special operations within the Marines. But Dave and I had gotten together a couple of months before this and started working out in his garage gym. And we told Nick about this kind of weird workout called CrossFit. And we didn't see him for like a month. And then when we saw him, his neck was all big and he looked kind of jacked. I'm like, dude, what have you been up to? And he's like, oh, I'm doing that CrossFit stuff. So 
we started doing CrossFit uh, again around 2000, 2001, really in earnest and uh, uh, in Dave's garage. And within about three months, four months, we had 15 or 20 people that we were training. Like we just, hey, come work out with us and and what have you. And so we decided that we actually wanted to open a commercial gym and and do this CrossFit thing. And so we reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit and asked them, may we open a gym and call it CrossFit? And they said, yes, go be achieve. And this is kind of the, the funny, um, freewheeling, you know, Glassman is very, very libertarian at, at, at heart in many regards, but, uh, I don't think so. So that gym CrossFit North was the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. I then not long after this moved down to Chico, California, uh, where I did my undergrad and I opened what was then to be the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym in the world, CrossFit NorCal. Um, I don't think we had a contract of any kind for about three or four years. Like it was like a handshake deal and, and, uh, which is good and bad in a lot of ways, but, um, that would gave me an opportunity to work with just thousands and thousands of people in this kind of clinical setting, um, talking about sleep and food and mute movement and autoimmune issues. And, uh, uh, that, that experience allowed me to write my first New York times bestselling book, the paleo solution. I went on to do, uh, work with like Naval special warfare, working with the pre and post deployment, um, kind of aspects of the seal teams, uh, maybe a little bit more of, of kind of market and libertarian interest. Uh, I'm on the board of directors of a medical clinic that's based in Reno, Nevada. And we did a metabolic risk assessment program over 10 years ago where we screened police and firefighters for susceptibility to type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And we were able to, to use some advanced testing to identify these folks. And then we did a pretty strong intervention on them, uh, kind of a low carb type diet, some, some appropriately dosed CrossFit, some attention to detail on their, um, their sleep and recovery. But that pilot study alone is, uh, saved the city of Reno about $22 million with a, a conservative 33 to one return on investment. And that was something that I really thought was going to transform medicine. I thought it was going to be like the Moore's law of medicine. Um, that was some naivete on, on my part. I didn't, I did not remotely understand how completely broken, uh, our healthcare system is and even something that, that could save so much money and save so many lives like this risk assessment program. We've had a modicum of success, mainly with a self-insured uh, captives, uh, where you've got a, a medium sized business and they're paying their own nut for their healthcare. We've had a fair amount of success in, in those circles, but as far as getting like governmental buy-in, even at a state level, the, uh, we've never really had that. The only big bite that we've had was a couple of years where I worked with the Chickasaw nation, um, developing a program like this for their, for their kind of in-house use. So, um, there's a lot of other stuff in there, but that's like 20, about 25 years of my career, you know, going from a health crisis, getting into this paleo diet concept, uh, uh, get it becoming involved with um, CrossFit in its early inception, and then going on and doing a, a lot of different work, in, including a medical risk assessment material that, that we've been working on the last 10 years. For those who don't know what ulcerative colitis is and, and the paleo diet, um, why don't you explain both of those things? 
Sure. Ulcerative colitis is one of many different uh, flavors of inflammatory bowel disease. Like there's uh, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's. They're all a little bit different, but they all tend to have some some similarities of, of just it, it, inflammation within the gut. They tend to be kind of autoimmune in nature where, where the, the body is kind of attacking itself. Uh, historically, if you talk to a GI doc or doctors in general, they would say that our diet has absolutely no influence on, um, you know, the, the outcome of our, our gut health, which is just amazing to me. We have, we have this massive amount of surface area that we interact with, you know, the outside world via our gut. And it seems kind of crazy. It would be like going to a dermatologist and you've got a rash all over you. And it's like, Hey doc, I've been crawling around in these weeds and bushes. Could, could my interaction with these plants, you know, cause any type of like dermal issue. And the doc would be like, no, that's crazy talk. You know, there, there, there's no way that's possible. But the, the, the ulcerative colitis is an inflammatory bowel disease, which can kill you. And, and usually the management is either surgery and or immunosuppressant drugs. Neither of those are really, um, it, it's not something one, one wishes on, on even most of their worst enemies. Like it, it, it's pretty nasty stuff. And then the paleo diet is this, this way of looking at nutrition that uh, basically puts an eye towards our, our evolutionary history, our, our ancestral history, thinking about what uh, hunter gatherers consumed and, and what's been uh, available to, to those people. And, and it, it's worth noting that the the remaining hunter gatherer groups have been pretty extensively studied. You know uh, how long they live, how well they live, and whatnot. And although they have a high infant mortality rate because of lack of of direct medical care for like infections and, and injuries and whatnot, um, hunter gatherers are more likely to live into advanced age than we are if they get to like their thirties. Like they got to get to that that point, and then they they tend to be really robust, really healthy. They have a very different kind of uh, life trajectory relative to Westerners, we hit about 25 or 30 years old. And we, we tend to have this very rapid decline in physicality and cognitive function hasn't always been this way. If you look at pictures of, you know, PE classes in the 1970s, like there were no overweight folks. Uh, so you don't have to go all the way back to a paleo diet to, uh, to really see the, the benefit of just eating kind of minimally processed whole foods. Yeah. And it seems like nutrition as a whole, um, is a sort of proto science and, and you're at the forefront of it and, and this new kind of revolution or rebellion from, I guess, the health experts is at the forefront of it. But, is it right to say that like this um, new study of like gut health and maybe the connection between uh, the gut and the brain and mental health is is sort of new and, and we don't really understand it? Or uh, would you kind of reject that and say that maybe our ancestors did understand it and that we abandoned that? Or, or how would you kind of frame that? Man, that's a really good question. You know, I, I think it was Hippocrates said that all disease begins in the gut. And so that that's like 2000 years of, of wisdom, at least there. Um, it, it's worth noting that for ages, I mean, 30, maybe 40 going on 50 years, there's been this concept of like intestinal permeability or leaky gut. 
And when I first started getting into this this line of work, um, if you went to PubMed, like the the uh, National Institutes of Health database where all the peer-reviewed published research on the planet kind of ends up there, maybe not all of it, but a huge repository ends up there. If you look at the, if you put into PubMed intestinal permeability or leaky gut, and you go back to the very early iterations of the material there, it's worth noting that everybody who was credible said that that was bullshit, said that it was pseudoscience and quackery, and there is no such thing as intestinal permeability. And this went on for years and um, uh, researchers, physicians, they would effectively get deplatformed very differently than what happens today, but they would lose academic funding. They would lose, uh, uh, you know, positions within their institution because of researching these, these topics around intestinal health and intestinal permeability and whatnot. And I will say that the paleo diet concept really put this idea of gut health and intestinal permeability, like really on the radar. And there is a lot of charlatanism around this stuff. People make these really extraordinary claims about if you just have this particular type of gut microbiota, then everything's going to be great. Um, uh, some people insist that you must eat a lot of fermentable fiber. Then you got like the carnivore people that make the case that um, depending on your gut health situation, maybe you should eat very, very little fiber. But there was just a study the other day that that made a super strong linkage between Parkinson's, uh, Alzheimer's, and some some alterations in the gut flora that 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 that, that these neurodegenerative diseases may originate in the gut. Um, and it may be some some alterations in the gut microbiota, the bacteria that live in the gut, how they damage the intestinal lining, and that 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 then leads into systemic inflammation that um, in at least some susceptible individuals leads to neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And it it's just kind of mind blowing. It's really incredible. And again, uh, you know, coming off of COVID and and it. I, I guess that this is part of the reason why I have this huge skepticism for a lot of what is kind of near and dear to like mainstream thinking is that I've seen so many examples where the orthodoxy was just completely wrong and completely closed minded about any potential nuance around a topic. And, and uh, I've been able to help. I'm, I'm not particularly smart. Like I am average IQ. <laughs> like I, I work super hard, you know, but I, I, uh, I, I'm not like a, a super genius by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, what I have had is what I consider an operating system that's superior to just about everybody that I bump into. And I look at the world through the lens of kind of Austrian economics, thermodynamics, which is the energy flow within systems and then evolutionary biology. And I, I, when you've got an operating system like that, I think it gives you this really disproportionately powerful way of looking at the world. And I've been able to help a ton of people, millions of people with a, a host of different health issues because of really focusing on the gut health. So I, I, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there that this gut health thing now is is kind of accepted in orthodoxy. You see people like Rhonda Patrick and Dr. Uh, Huberman, Andrew Huberman talking about gut health. 15 years ago, no, it, hardly anybody was talking about this stuff. And it was still um, kind of the, the realm of pseudoscience and not 
everything that's outside the mainstream is inherently correct just because it's outside the mainstream. But this is where it, people ask me if if I'm, um, uh, uh, you know, contrarian, and I don't consider myself a contrarian. To, to me, when I meet people who are contrarians, they just call bullshit on like everything, and they're just kind of like like curmudgeons. And and you know, I, I'm not that person. If somebody put something by uh, past me and they've got like a, a plausible mechanism, even if it seems kind of weird, it's like, okay, well, let's dig into that and kind of explore it. And this gut health thing, I, I think is like front and center on that. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about it is that um, all too often, I think we have very little that we can do to influence gut health other than um, elimination diets, improving our sleep. And, and that's kind of it. Like there's all these magic pills and potions and, and, uh, 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 you know, proprietary strains of gut bacteria and everything that they're feeding to people. Maybe someday we'll really figure out how that works, but I haven't been super impressed with any of that stuff so far. Yeah. You alluded to the operating system that you, you work with. And I think a lot of people are familiar with your background in health, but they might not know, uh, maybe how you got into Austrian economics or libertarianism. Um, what is your ideological background? Were you always sort of libertarian or, uh, I guess, was there a moment that, that convinced you of, of these ideas? Man, I, I've heard a similar Genesis story, uh, with a lot of people. I, I, I think I've always had, um, since a kid being a kid, um, I could not abide bullies. I could not abide people being victimized and taken advantage of. Like if, I, I've always been fairly athletic and into martial arts and stuff like that. And if I saw somebody being picked on, like I, I couldn't live with myself not doing something to, to intervene on that. So I, that's been a, a piece of, of my thinking. And what, what was always interesting to me too um, I grew up in rural Northern California, pretty conservative area. And I found myself frequently at odds with a lot of my like conservative, you know, family members and, and friends and whatnot, because early on, like the drug war made absolutely no sense to me. Like as a kid, I looked at what was going on. I'm like, they're just perpetuating this thing. Like this is just a guarantee to expand the police state, you know, and I, I didn't have any of the technical terms to describe that. It was kind of an intuitive gestalt level thing, but I knew that the drug war as it was being implemented was bullshit and was just worsening the situation. I was also really early on very okay with uh, like uh, same-sex marriage. Like I didn't really understand why there was, you, you know, a lot of hoopla around that. So I found myself um, pretty much at odds with almost everybody I bumped into. Like if somebody was pretty liberal then my, my like fiscal ideas and like my, my nervousness around infinite social security nets becoming multi-generational traps. Cause I came out of that. Like my, a lot of my family was in the welfare trap and, and I, I, I saw how just sticky that, that situation could be and how nasty it and difficult the, the misaligned incentives could be for getting out of it. But then we would talk about some social stuff and then my more conservative family members would like lose their minds over me being concerned about expansionist war activities. And I love our military. I think they're amazing. But it's like if we're going to fight a war, declare war, go through the Constitution, fucking like lay out some objectives, 
go win that war and then come home and don't just keep this like military industrial thing going where we're, we're, we're just fighting proxy wars all over the planet. Like that stuff has driven me crazy, but it was, um, I had a, an econ professor in junior college that just it, like, it blew my mind how powerful this, this economic lens of looking at the world through economics and resource scarcity and aligning incentives. It, it, it just, it, it seemed like magic to me. Um, I couldn't figure out a way to do a career path directly around that, but that would, it, 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 it's, it was one, one class, you know, it was like a four unit class, but it had 400 units worth of weight in my life. Like it, it would just so impactful. And then I guess it was, uh, uh, maybe the first go around of Ron Paul's run up. Like I had discovered, um, some material from Mises and, you know, again, some of the like, uh, uh, Chicago and, and Austrian kind of e economic, you know, schools of thought and to be kind of digging into it, Milton Friedman, Hoover Institute and stuff like that. But it when Ron Paul was do really doing his run up and he had a couple of these, um, these YouTube videos that still every once in a while, when I'm feeling bummed out, like I'll pull up one of those and watch it and, you know, have, have a little, uh, sense of hope for the world. Like that's where a lot of my worldview started really crystallizing. I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm a libertarian at heart, you know, and, and probably even within that kind of a small L libertarian, because I know some people are like, I, I guess it'd be more the, the classic liberal where I, I don't necessarily think that we're going to operate without some sort of governance. I would just like to see a lot more of our governance happen at the local level, because if those people screw us over, we know where they live and we know whose needs to go break when we need to do it, you know, and really try to minimize the the accretion of power at higher and higher levels um so yeah I'm, I'm just rambling like an idiot now but that's kind of the the long arc of this stuff but i i really think um as time has gone on and i've looked at this stuff i i do think that at least some people are kind of hatched libertarian like they they just have this worldview that's pretty egalitarian but not egalitarian in like the woke we're going to make everything. We're going to hamstring the successful people and and subsidize the the you know unmotivated people so that everybody has like a shitty endpoint. I'm more like let's try to give everybody a pretty good chance and make sure that people aren't you know unnecessarily victimized and and then let's go forward and make sure that a high tide raises all boats. Yeah, it's interesting that it all kind of goes back to Ron Paul because I'm so I'm only 23. I wasn't even aware of politics when when he was running. But I mean, had he not run, I, I likely wouldn't be a libertarian today because um, I, I got at it through my honor civics class in high school. My my teacher at the time uh, was a libertarian and and he had a photo of Ron Paul in his classroom. So and, and the Mises caucus, the, the idea behind it was that we were the Ron Paul revolution 2.0 and right. we were going to bring it into the libertarian party and take over the libertarian party and make you know, the the small L libertarian phrase kind of go out the window because we always had to separate the two. But it's like, what if we could just identify as libertarians and not have to worry that there's some organization out there called libertarian that isn't. Um, and, and thankfully, we we took over the party um, at the last convention and, and we're, we're trying to usher in this new framework of uh, decentralized revolution. And, and this podcast is called um, the decentralized revolution. And we, we just released a 
project decentralized revolution kind of uh, uh, vision document. And the idea behind it is that we have to face political realities and, and confront the fact that a libertarian isn't going to win the presidency anytime soon. And the way that it works is through local communities and issue coalitions. Um, we, we probably won't even win city councils. It's, it's more possible. But the way that we actually build trust with these communities is to go to our city councilmen and and uh, if, if they agree with us on like, um, you know, psychedelic legalization or something like that, we, we build coalitions with them or what I did in this last session in Montana is we, we had a coalition with the ACLU, uh, the Freedom Caucus, a bunch of people in the Republican Party, and we tried to push forward um, defend the guard legislation, which mm. uh, basically would say that a state cannot uh, send its National Guard units to war if it's been undeclared. So we're, we're trying to basically usher in this this localization movement within the Libertarian Party and, and encourage people to do it at a local level. Um, so it's awesome to hear that you have that that background. And I was listening to one of your um, podcasts. You came out with it, I think, in February, and it was titled The Freedom to Transact. Yeah. And you you kind of redid your artwork and, and you now have the freedom to transact in your bio on Twitter. Um, I'm wondering what the thinking is behind that phrase and, and why you kind of rebranded your show around that. Yeah. And it all props go to my wife on this. And, uh, uh, she actually has an, an econ background and speaks like five languages and is much, oh, wow. much smarter than I am. She speaks some Russian. She's fluent in Italian and Spanish and everything. And, uh, when you look at her and you look at me and you're like, how did she get stuck with that lump? Um, basically <laughs> when we were at Chico state, there were five women for every one guy. So the, the deck was stacked, uh, disproportionately in my favor, but, um, <laughs> she, she got really into crypto, uh, a number of years ago and, and not just as, as like trying to do this get rich quick thing, but like really thinking about how could, how could this thing be used to, help with healthcare and food systems. Like I've thought about, uh, some of the issues around like the, the, uh, transparency of our food system being really, uh, am amenable to the blockchain, being able to deal with that, you know, like, uh, food safety and stuff like that. But she started getting into this crypto scene and NFTs and she followed this guy punk six, five, two, nine. And he's one of these, um, these whales within the, the crypto NFT space. Like he's, probably a billionaire like nobody knows exactly who he is but but, but self-admittedly he's a, at least several hundred million dollars net worth and he's he's produced some amazing thought pieces and one of them was that th this right to transact and it was during kind of the height of covid and deplatforming and uh you know and deplatforming for so many different things like if you weren't towing the line on like social justice stuff, deplatformed. If you had a question about this novel therapeutic that was supposed to be our only hope for dealing with the coronavirus, like deplatforming, and, and, and uh, the Canadian truckers, like when when people started donating money to the Canadian truckers, and then those banks shut down the accounts, and there was even and, and continues to be punitive action against people who donated to those people. He came out with this piece that 
made the case that the right to transact is the most fundamental right that we have. Because like, you want a right to freedom of speech? Great. Do you want to make a poster? Do you want to have a podcast? Like you need to be able to transact to be able to do any of that stuff. Do you want to go go do um, a, a protest somewhere? Okay. If you need a bus ticket to go to the protest and you don't have the right to transact, if the banks or whomever has the ability to shut down your ability to buy a plane ticket or a bus ticket or buy a pam you know pamphlet material, you don't have a First Amendment. You don't have a Second Amendment if you can't buy a firearm because you have been debanked, de you know. And he went through and just basically made this. I I, I thought it was brilliant. Um piece and i i've i've seen people cranky about his notion but i haven't seen anybody credibly dismiss his thesis you know and and so this idea of the right to transact is the most fundamental right and um for me personally we ended up experiencing some really interesting kind of deplatforming in uh 2018 uh i've had this online business since 2007. I've got a blog and a podcast. I've written books. Uh, we had, you know, we were selling different um, courses through Facebook and Google and what have you. And we got up one day and I, I don't, I don't like obsess over our website traffic, but I'll just kind of take a peek at it every three or four days. And our site traffic had dropped by 97% overnight. And I, I, uh, I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. And, and because our site traffic dropped by 97%, our income dropped by 97%. And also right around this time, we had been selling some keto related courses on Facebook and doing really well with it. Like it's a, it's a well thought out course and we had lots of support with it and everything. That thing just disappeared. Like we could sell it for exactly break even and not a nickel more. Like it was, it was just, it would keep feeding Facebook, but it would not feed us. And it took about a week maybe two weeks. And then it came out that uh, Google had done this thing called the owl update and a number of health related websites, including mine, they hadn't been removed from the web, from the internet, but they had basically been made very, very difficult to find. So I had thousands of articles on different things. You know, it's like CrossFit, type one diabetes, low carb diets. Like, you know, you put in these different topics and the chances were, I had a, a, an article on this and I had articles that were linked back from ESPN and, and some really high ranking websites. So I was a, a, a really well-regarded website in the eyes of Google historically. And I couldn't entirely understand why Google was going after these health related spots, particularly low carb, but there, there was some interesting synergy within that. Um, a number of the web, most of the websites were kind of paleo or low carb, almost, almost to a, to a, a, a website that, that was a, a feature of it. A number of these websites also were, were, you know, what we would call vaccine skeptics. Some of them were fully down the rabbit hole of like, nobody should ever take any vaccine. And others were just like, Hey, maybe we should stick more with just the live attenuated viruses and really avoid the, the use of adjuvants and stuff like that. So there was a spectrum I had never really talked much about the vaccine topic, but I had definitely talked a lot about, uh, uh, you know, low carb diets and, and things like that. But this owl update was this, this event that really catalyzed my, my 
eye opening around. I don't own my website really at the end of the day, Google does because the ability to funnel traffic to this thing is, is where I live and die. And so we, we sold our house in Reno. We moved to Texas. Um, we spun up a couple of new businesses, several of them, uh, uh, hopefully that were in positions that they would not be, you know, killable by Google if, if Google decided that they didn't like us. And we spun this thing up, the Healthy Rebellion, which was a, a private community to try to help people build resiliency and whatnot. And, and so, you know, again, I know kind of long wandering story, but that right to transact, like it, it really struck a chord with me. It, in large part because we had had our ability to transact taken away from us and way before the the kind of more common deplatforming debanking of the uh you know like the covid and post covid era so that was the the impetus for this stuff and you know honestly um i think that something related to food and health sovereignty and the right to transact is probably what I'm going to devote the rest of my life around because it feels like this is, this is where the fight is, is going to be like this. Um, smart people have figured out that if they can take away our ability to connect with each other and in, in, in particular, if they can deplatform us from, from banking and ability to transact, like they, they've crushed us, they will crush any type of resistance that we might, you know, put, put towards, uh, political tyranny. So this is kind of the area that I'm going to be pushing back on, but that's kind of the long, long arc of where this, this idea around the freedom to transact came from and why it's super important to me. Yeah. And it's very related to, um, other areas that you've worked in too. Uh, you, you came out with a book, uh, co-authored with, um, is it Diana, Diana Rogers? Rogers? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Called sacred cow. And, um, it's very much about the right to transact, especially in the context very recently where we've had people like John Kerry come out and say that we need to shut down all agriculture uh, if we want to reach net zero goals, because agriculture is related to um, carbon output. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering a little bit about your uh, perspective on all of this and maybe the motives of uh, and, and incentives of the the health industry. You had had alluded to um, some of the issues with the current status quo within health, where you know we're we're trying to um, maybe put band aids on things rather than get to the source of the issue, or how the health industry was not receptive of your your idea. Um, so, what do you think is at play in the health industry is it is it dominated by people like john Kerry who are ideologues or um are there true believers and i guess what are the incentives at play here that seem so uh adamantly opposed to health because like the the tinfoil hat uh part of me and i think many in our movement start to see a pattern and, and we start to wonder if there's an actual attack on health in itself or if they're under underlying maybe economic incentives at play instead. Man, it's uh that's a really again you're queuing up some great questions. I don't know if my answers are going to be as as good as your your <laughs> questions are. Um I've tried not to play the conspiracy theory hat too much because it's um it's kind of a trope and it's kind of a uh uh it's this you know, grab bag. It, you should. Uh, everything's a conspiracy. But um, 
I think it's kind of a conspiracy. <laughs> like I, 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 without a doubt, it, you know, there's this weird connection between like the world health organization, the world economic forum, their connectivity within pharma, within big food, within academia, within politics. Uh, every five years, there's this uh, updating of like the, the USDA food guidelines. And each time, uh, Paleo, low carb diets—they they just perform abysmally. They're, oh, they're terrible. They're bad for you. Bad for cardiovascular health. Now they're bad for the planet um, because animal husbandry is supposed to be this like the most injurious, you know, element of uh, you, you know in the in our our world to um, climate change and whatnot. And it is so not representative of reality that. It, it literally is is like a flat earth type thing. But the establishment effectively on this climate change topic are flat earthers, in my opinion. And then you have people looking around saying, hey, um, when cows eat grass and they belch methane, that's exactly the same carbon that would have happened if that grass had just degraded on the soil and and either turned into methane or turned into carbon dioxide. It's the same carbon. It's part of a carbon cycle. It's not net net producing any additional carbon because that carbon came out of the atmosphere, part of a plant, part of an animal back in the atmosphere. Um, kids get this stuff immediately and then trying to explain it to adults. Uh, they, they, they kind of go cross-eyed and they, they, you know, even raising a question about it now, you're called a racist, you're called a science denier, like, you know, on and on. But um, I really think it comes down to control. And there's an enormous amount of money to be made off of um, controlling food systems like the, the these fake meat companies, Beyond Burger and Impossible Foods. They made these just amazing claims that... Um, the food they were producing was healthier, that it was more sustainable. And by sustainability, they claimed that it had a smaller carbon footprint. Um, and then when it was researched a little bit more deeply, like feeding this, this fake food to animals made the animals sick. Looking at a life cycle analysis, which is all the full thermodynamic inputs and outputs, the, uh, the Impossible Burger and, and Beyond Meat, it it actually does produce far more carbon than than conventional meat does, and if you do regenerative grazing, you actually sequester more carbon than you release into the atmosphere, and it it improves habitat, improves water retention. Like there's all these knock on benefits to it, but um, it it really feels like it's just this this um move towards control, and I I forget uh whether it was Gehring or one of, one of Stalin's, or maybe it was Stalin, but it was basically, you know, if you, if you control energy, you control the nation, if you control food, you control the people. And I, I see this climate change topic and um, some of the really poor decisions being made around energy access and in, in particular food access. Um, it's, it's an attempt to control the populace you know, and, and to what end, I'm not entirely sure. Like, I don't think I'm fully on board with like the depopulation agenda, but then when you look at the people behind this stuff and they're like complete eugenicists and, and depopulationists, it's like, well, I don't know, like maybe I'm being naive, not, not giving that uh, uh, more credit, but 
it, it sure feels, and it also, I think, credibly empirically links up that there's a move to control everything from our banking to our food choices to our ability to travel and entertain ourselves and, and all of that. And all under this, this guise that, um, you know, we're going to, going to destroy the planet with, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and whatnot. And I'm not, I I'm still in this spot where I think that there is anthropogenic, you know, climate change being driven by the activity of human beings. Like I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is there have been these claims of what the severity of that is and what it will mean for humanity and what we need to do to avert that. And what I'm seeing happen is it will, if we do everything that like the net zero people are putting forward, it will doom the developing world to remain in poverty for a hundred years instead of 20 more years. Like we're, we're 20, maybe 30 years from the lowest standard of living in the world being the equivalent of about a 60 grand per year income in the United States today. That will be poverty the world over in 30 years if we don't completely hamstring the global economy and, and limit energy access and all this type of stuff. And I, I just don't believe that the, um, the challenges posed by climate change, like the Netherlands is a great example. The Netherlands has been dealing with, with um, ocean uh, encroachment for like 600 years. They built dikes and levees and, and two thirds of the Netherlands is below sea level, but yet they're one of the most productive uh, bits of farmland in, in all of the European Union. Humans are incredibly good at dealing with problems so long as we're operating with accurate information. But right now we're being given a, a big bill of goods around what the severity of climate change is, what the appropriate responses are, and and a host of things around that. And again, I know that was bouncing around a lot. It's uh, the, the book and film Sacred Cow covers the uh, health, environmental, and ethical considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. The rough draft to the book was 600 pages, got it whittled down to 300 pages. And it, I, I feel like it's a very good book. Like, I feel like we did a good job on it and the editors were good, but it's a massive topic. Like, and it, it plays like, it feels like playing whack-a-mole because there's so many interconnected pieces that you either give a trite bullshit answer that really doesn't explain the thing, or you need to do a mini PhD thesis to really, you know, give proper treatment for stuff. But um, yeah. 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 Whether, whether it's this, uh, like the health push or the push to get rid of like fossil fuels. I mean, um, it, I can't help but question, uh, whether there is like a, uh, depopulation push because it's like all of these things lead to, uh, serious problems, especially in, in developing countries. Um, and, and I had the chance to interview Clint Russell. Uh, many in our audience will know who he is. He's from, uh, Liberty lockdown. And I, I asked him this question because he's he's focused on environmental social governance scores and uh, uh, CBDCs and uh, the potential effect of those. And he says that it, it's a mix of things. It's there, there are these true believers and there are these Malthusian Malthusians who are really concerned with population, but then they're pulling on the heartstrings of like environmentalists who, you know, maybe project their own emotions on cows and they, they, you know, they right. feel bad or, or whatever. Um, 
but then there are the the people who are who are genuinely interested in saving the planet and so it's like a mixture of all of these things and it's like a a perfect storm and and, and it's extremely effective and that's what's so concerning um i wanted to give you an opportunity uh just to kind of talk more about like uh the health benefits of beef i i got a lot of questions about that from the audience people were were interested in um just this concept that you know beef is also the most nutrient dense source of food and uh there there's this like like i mentioned earlier kind of a rebellion from the health experts and we're seeing people like paul saladino and yourself and so many others just you know gain so much popularity on on social media so i wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about um sacred cow and, and the health aspect of the book yeah yeah thank you and uh, I'll, I'll try to do a half decent job on that and, and i think really it 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 has to start with the way that ruminants cows sheep goats camels a host of different critters like that there's but but cattle in particular are so good at taking low quality food, low quality forage and nutrient upcycling it and turning it into incredibly bioavailable nutrient dense food for humans in, in, in particular. And uh, gosh, there, it, it, so one of the more credible elements, if you were to say, okay, well, scientifically sell me on, on the efficacy of like the paleo type diet or whatever. And, there's a lot of different ways you could go after, but I think one of the most credible ways is this thing called nutrient density. Like how much nutrition, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants do you get per calorie? And when you look at food through that lens, and there, there was a guy recently, God, I always forget his name, but he re, redid a lot of the nutrient density values. So like kale looks pretty good because in kale, there are some good nutrients like folate. But when you consider that it's very, very difficult to get these nutrients out of certain plants, they're not actually that good. And it was like out of the top 20 most nutrient dense foods, something like 12 or 15 of them are animal products. And then the remaining like six or eight end up getting into plant materials and uh, these ruminant animals and their organs and whatnot, um, almost all of the like nutrient deficiencies that we see within developing countries, B vitamins, folic acid, iron, zinc, magnesium, it, it's largely addressed by, by just a nominal consumption of, of like beef or beef-like products. Shellfish are really good too. Like shellfish are, are really remarkably good in that regard. And I, I think from a sustainability standpoint are, are really powerhouses. Like they, again, can grow in these kind of marginal areas and, and shellfish uh, play this really remarkable role in, in helping to uh, establish the health of estuaries and stuff like that. But again, the, the, when we look at the, the nutrient profile of beef, the relative ease of growing beef, um, and there's all kinds of folklore around cattle use all this excess food, they use all this water, and we address this stuff in the film, like the even conventional meat, um, 94, 92, 94% of the water, the, the, you could categorize water in one of three categories. Uh, blue water is basically water that falls on the earth. Green water is, is um, 
like lakes, rivers, streams, below ground aquifers and whatnot. And then there's gray water, which is like the, the effluent after animal or human usage, you know, like sewage and, and whatnot. Um, when, when folks do these estimates, you know, that it takes like X number of bathtubs of water to do one pound of meat and whatnot. What they're accounting for there is the water that fell on grasslands to grow grass, to grow the cattle. That water hopefully falls, you know, one way or the other. And it's not like it's being lost. It's not like it's being mismanaged or, or otherwise misused. That, that properly managed grassland grows insects and birds and snakes and rodents. And there's all this other stuff that happens within the, the context of a well-managed grassland. And again, within conventional meat, 92, 94% of the water that is used comes from that blue water source within a grass finished holistically managed meat. It, it's closer to like 98%. Whereas say like almonds, almost all of the water that is used for almond production comes from pumping aquifers from below ground to the surface. And then we export like 80% of the almonds to uh, Asia. So people are okay with almonds because they're a plant protein even though the sustainability footprint of almonds is, is ridiculous compared to say like um, beef. And uh, uh, just as an aside, I think one of the fascinating opportunities, both with beef and with pork and, and even chicken, historically those animals, a lot of their feed inputs were, were leftovers. So like within the beef industry, you have all this ethanol production, you know, whether it's beer or wine or distilled spirits or what have you, the mash that's left over from that can and, and probably should be fed to cattle. It makes it not necessarily grass fed, but it, it is a nutrient dense, good, good food source for the, for the animals. And this is a really smart use of, of that material. Uh, historically within human history, um, marginal food, say like food that's gone, gone bad or is on, on the edge of going bad has been fed to, to pigs. And, uh, we landfill nearly half of the food that we produce right now because it doesn't look quite right. Like it, it you know, it, uh, people don't eat it at home, but there's massive, uh, wastage of food at supermarkets and whatnot. And this is a, an interesting way of, of upcycling food that would otherwise just get composted. And so I think there's a lot of resilience and a lot of elasticity within our, our food systems that aren't really being well accounted for at, as we look at it right now. And again, I know that was super far afield from the just basic, like, why is beef um, nutritious? But again, this is... Um, the stuff really does need to be looked at in a holistic fashion. Like when we wrote the book and did the movie... We thought that we were going to start with the environment or the ethical side of this story first of, of animal husbandry. But what was interesting is when we really dug into the human health thing, we made the case that it's really hard to grow a human, either a pregnant mom and or her baby without animal product inputs. I mean, it's really hard to not produce nutrient deficiencies in that scenario. You need complex supplementation schedules and all kinds of different things that aren't amenable to like the developing world and, and even, you know, just rural poor uh, uh, Westerners that don't have access to that stuff. So it changes the ethics. Like if you can't grow a human being healthfully without animal product inputs, 
what is the ethics of, of eating animals? And then when we started looking at like the environmental side of this story, we, we are losing topsoil from industrial row crop farming like crazy. We don't really know how many harvests we still have. There's like this thing thrown out there that we have 60 harvests left. We tried to track that thing down and it was just kind of an offhand comment at a, a World Health Organization meeting. There's nothing scientifically credible to it other than we are definitely losing topsoil like crazy within you know this industrial row crop food system when we're out of topsoil we are out of the ability to to make food and the way that you fix those those uh, uh eroding topsoils is by rotationally bringing in animals to to graze in those those uh, uh production scenarios so if you can't have long-term food production without animals then it changes the environmental story a lot. And then when you, you know, then when you ultimately circle back around to the ethics thing, like if we can't raise humans healthfully without animal products, if we can't have a healthy environment without the interaction of ruminants in our, our, our food system, then it changes the whole ethics story, you know? And, and when we recognize that the current row crop food system kills billions of different organisms, and if you equate a mouse as being equal to a cow because they're both mammals and they have similar intelligence, you start seeing some really interesting, you know, side-by-side -side comparisons about um, the, the, the planet of the vegans industrial row crop food system is not bloodless and it, it's not benign and it actually is not sustainable. The thing that is sustainable is a mixed use animal and plant production system. And we have examples of this a couple of thousand years old in like Northern Europe. Um, we, we have uh, uh, some places in Scotland where like the ownership deeds can be traced back 12, 1500 years and they haven't destroyed that environment. They, they, they have uh, uh, been able to continue producing food for, for nearly 2000 years in these areas. So uh, again, I know it's bouncing around a lot and maybe we can come back and, and do a show later when we both have more time and I can get into more of this, this detail, but I, I, um, I don't want to give trite soundbite answers to things that are really complex and people need to, to dig into it a little bit to, to understand it. And this is some of the asymmetric warfare that we are fighting. The, the folks that are on this industrial row cop kind of vegan centric worldview they will just say, meat causes cancer, meat gives you diabetes, meat is unethical, it's destroying the environment. If you go vegan, you'll live forever and you'll be morally superior. And they just throw that stuff out there with no scientific qualifications at all. And then it falls on people like me to unpack that. And each one of those claims necessitates like a mini PhD dissertation to be able to really <laughs> thoroughly unpack it. You know, And it, what's interesting is usually asymmetric warfare is carried on by the underdog, but not only are the powers that be kind of in control of the narrative, they're also using an asymmetric warfare tactic to fight this thing. So it's, uh, I have a lot of job security in this, this, this <laughs> thing, you know, as far as like this problem is not going to get solved out from under me like uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to let you go in a couple minutes. Um, and we're definitely going to have to bring you back because, uh, we, we received a lot of questions um, related to this stuff and, and we weren't able to get to all of them. But I, I wanted to finish on a more positive note since you uh, uh, kind of were uh, pretty 
pessimistic there just with the the state of the world and the state of uh the people who are in control um where do we go from here and i think this this ties into what we were talking about earlier with decentralization and and the theme of the the podcast here um you've talked about regenerative regenerative farming and and the way that this is good for the environment but also why uh in order to do that and and in order to make it scalable we might have to do it locally and at a decentralized level i i think everything we're doing needs to operate at a more local decentralized level uh and i i would make the case that um your and your family and your community's individual health is like the most important thing you could possibly do uh with covid if you weren't sick if you weren't metabolically uh broken and obese it was a it was a bad bad cold like that was it. If you were overweight, had high blood sugar and, you know, some other health issues, it was a really big deal. And you had a pretty good chance of, of dying from it. Um, and the, and this just goes on and on. Like, so, so many different topics, um, the, the massive healthcare expenditures that we have are because the bulk of the people in our society are really sick. So like the, the first thing that we all need to do is be healthy. And this is something that, um, if you're a super left leaning socialist, then you should be healthy to support the motherland and not be a drain on, on society. And if you're a more conservative type person, then you should fucking be healthy because you need to take care of you and your family. Like I have met so many chubby conservatives that like they've got guns and knives coming out of the, you know, every orifice on them, but they literally would not be able to run up a hill without stroking out. I'm just like, you guys don't get it at all. <laughs> you know, So like taking care of your health is, is kind of number one thing interacting with local food producers you know there is somebody near you that produces sheep and and cows and you could you could buy the bulk of your meat from them go get a big chest freezer when we lived in an apartment where our, our one we had a two-bedroom apartment part of our living room had a chest freezer in it because i i prioritized having access to good food and, and i i bought enough meat that it, it was worthwhile for me to, to buy a whole cow or a half cow and stick it in that chest freezer so like make some decisions locally and and start influencing uh local like city council hoa decisions around this kind of libertarian mindset and and just be vigilant about any encroachment into personal liberties. Like this is a, a absolutely ye shall not pass moment for us. Like we can't let more personal liberty encroachment happen. And we, the only place that we will have effect is at the local level. And if we can affect that change at the local level, it will inherently trickle up to the, the more, federalized level. And I have a feeling that the world is going to go through some, some pretty dramatic transitions such that we see more governance and, and more e economic activity happen at the more local and regional level. So I feel like on that more positive side, we just need to build these beachheads now so that we've got infrastructure for down the road. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much. Um, we're definitely, definitely going to have to invite you back on, but I appreciate it. And I'm sure this is going to be a very popular episode. So thank you. Awesome, man. You go. Thank you. All right. Well, there you have it. I'd like to thank Rob Wolf for joining me for this one. He's an awesome connection to have, and I hope the caucus can work together with him in the future to fight for health freedom. And also thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution and to our producer, Simon Kalpin. 
And thanks to you all who are subscribed to our email list and support the pack. You can do both of those things at takehumanaction.com. And please remember to like, comment, and share this podcast if you enjoyed it. And thanks for watching. We'll see you on the next show.